If you have your Bibles, I would invite you to open to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, I'll begin reading in verse 15. Let's give attention to God's word. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and a revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, so that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us to believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's pray. Oh Lord, once again we come to you and we ask that you would teach us and that you would give us a vision of our Savior. Seeing him in his beauty, seeing him in his glory, that it would move us to worship, move us to serve you, Move us to reflect in our actions and our words the light of life so that others might see it here in Ridgeland and Mississippi and around the world. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen. In Yosemite National Park in California, if you've ever been there, you'll find El Capitan. El Capitan is a 3,200-foot vertical granite rock face that a good number of people have scaled, or at least attempted to scale. But what caught my attention is in June of 2017, then 31-year-old Alex Hanold became the first person to scale El Capitan without a harness or a rope. And he did so in less than four hours. Astounding. There's a documentary, some of you may have seen it, entitled Free Solo, of his whole experience, which describes him, you know, as his free solo, and you, just, you get this impression that Alex is a superhuman. Uh, what he's able to do, you know, that the risk he's able to take or willing to take, imagine the sheer grit and guts that it would take to climb thousands of feet above, you know, the ground without a harness. One slip, one mistake, and it's all over. There's no margin for error when you're doing that. He's amazingly strong and agile, able to contort his body to every shape of a rock. He can hold his entire body up on a tiny nub no bigger than a fingernail while suspended 2,000 feet in the air. He seemingly has perfect balance, perfect body awareness, and enormous mental capacity. What an incredible man. What does this have to do with the Missions Festival? Well, as you begin the Missions Festival here at Pear Orchard, you know, and you think about serving those people who are near and far, those others that are serving, how you might serve King Jesus and his mission, how you might be a light to the world around you. Do you imagine that God is looking for you 
to be a Christian version of Alex? You know, you say, well, God will use in his kingdom those people who are courageous, highly dedicated and disciplined, strong in faith. Whew, thank God, because I'm off the hook then. Because I'm not like that. I'm not highly disciplined. Yeah, and I think that's true. You know, God does use those who are bold in their personality type, who are highly disciplined and daring. But I'm here to tell you that God also uses people who are timid, disorganized, and highly anxious. Does that describe you a little bit? I think of what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1, for consider your calling, brothers, not many of you are wise according to worldly standards, not many were powerful, not many were noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human might, being might boast in the presence of God. You see, being light proclaiming the gospel, advancing this, the kingdom of our Lord Jesus. As you think about that this week, this is not the time to take stock of your resources and your ability. This is not the week for that, to reflect, oh, here are, here's what I can offer to King Jesus. Here's what I can offer to the for his kingdom. No, this is the week to think more deeply about God what God has accomplished and what God provides in Christ Jesus. See, it's about his accomplishment, it's about his abilities, it's about his character, it's about his kingdom. And so what that does, it positions us in our heart of hearts to exalt the name of Christ, to honor Christ, to magnify and make much of our Savior. And we understand that if we're going to be, have a heart attitude rightly oriented that will serve King Jesus and his glory, then we do all these things for his admiration, for his esteem, for his praise, for his allegiance, for his worship, for his honor. This is where we begin and it makes me think, I have this phrase that missions begins with the eyes. Missions begins with the eyes. I have a friend in Spain, he would say, prayer starts in the ear. I remember the first time I heard that, I go, what do you mean? He said, well, it's very simple. You hear the word of God, you read it, and that prompts your prayer. And so I think in like manner, missions begins with the eyes. What are the eyes of your heart focused on? What do the eyes of your heart, the eyes of faith, see? In the passage that we read, Paul's prayer, is that we would have the eyes of our hearts enlightened. Why? Because he knows that what we see will structure how we live, how we serve, how we pray, and how we love our neighbor. So, what does he want us to do? The Lord, through the Apostle Paul, wants us to see with greater clarity the hope of our calling, the three things that he mentions here, the hope of our calling, the glorious inheritance in the saints, and the measurable greatness of his power at work in us. So let's look at those three things. So, this week I will pray for you, and I pray that you will pray for one another this way, that you will have the eyes of your heart enlightened, first of all, to see the hope of his calling. Verse 18, 
that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. And now you understand that biblically, hope isn't wishful thinking. I'm, I'm sure you, you understand that, you know, but biblically hope is life-changing certainty about the future, though that future is unseen. Life-changing certainty about the future. It is, as Paul Tripp describes, confident expectation of a guaranteed result. Confident expectation of a guaranteed result. See, the Apostle Paul knows that how we live, how we serve, how you will serve in missions and how other people serve in missions is in large measure determined by how we think about the future. So he wants us to live with a certainty about the future, the future that God has promised for his people. I think of a millionaire many years ago a millionaire by the name of Eugene Lang, he was asked to speak to a group of about 60 sixth graders in a school in East Harlem, New York. And his task was to go and try to encourage them to stay in school, to finish high school and go to college. And so he had a speech prepared for them. And when he gets to the class, he scraps his speech. <laughs> what am I gonna give a speech to these sixth graders? And, you know, as he, and he just spoke with them and he said to them, stay in school and I'll help pay college for every one of you. You know, at that moment, the lives of these kids changed. For the first time, they had a hope and a certainty, a certainty about their future, not based on what they possessed, but based on what someone else possessed and someone else promised to give to them. Now, that's astounding. One student said, I had something to look forward to, something waiting for me. And you know what's interesting? Nearly 90% of that class graduated from high school. Amazing. And you and I have someone who's greater than Eugene Lang. We have Jehovah Jireh. Jehovah Jireh who has given us and guaranteed the riches of his grace, the riches of his word and promises that are found in his calling. And notice, you know what Paul does here? He joins hope with calling. Now, it's not the hope of your calling. Now, you're calling as a pastor, you're calling as an engineer, you're calling as a doctor, a nurse, or whatever it might be. Not, not that, but as the New American Standard translates, that you may know what is the hope of his, God's, calling. And so, think about that for a moment. The hope of God's calling you. You see, God has called you and me into his kingdom. God has called us into the salvation in his son and he guarantees the fullness of that salvation, that it will come. He has called us and guarantees that one day when we die, we will be raised up in this glorified, beautiful, perfected body. He has guaranteed that we will appear with Christ in glory. He has guaranteed that we will be with God and share in his glory in the new heavens and the earth. He has guaranteed and called us to that glorious presence of his where there's no more pain and no more sorrow, no more tears, where we'll finally enter and joy and enjoy the beauty of the Lord and the beauty of his renewed earth. That is guaranteed for us. That's our calling. And so, if you've ever, ever thought, why well, I can't really serve the Lord. You know, what if it doesn't go as it's planned? What if I start up, try some ministry, somebody invites me to do something, and I, and I just mess up? What if I fail? 
do you really think that your failure will derail the hope of his calling? No. No. I have failed many times. We can sit down sometime and I can tell you a few of them. And it's not derailed the kingdom of King Jesus. That gives me lots of hope that he can use someone like me. You see, it's guaranteed because it's not dependent on our performance, it's not dependent on our success or failure, but it's dependent on the performance and the success, the perfect righteousness and the obedience and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, nothing else. And when your eyes and the eyes of your heart are fixed on this hope, then as Jonathan Edwards wrote, there is a certainty that your bad things will turn out for the ultimate good. Your good things can never be taken away from you and the best things are yet to come. Now you can serve, understanding that it's guaranteed to succeed. But Paul goes on, he says, he wants the eyes of our hearts enlightened so that we might see the glorious inheritance. In verse 18 as well, that you may know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, as ESV translates. Now, this can be taken in two ways, this phrase, to speak of the inheritance that God gives to us, Right, which cannot be corrupted by moth or rust, cannot be stolen. No, and without doubt, that's true. God does give to his people an inheritance. However, the grammar of this verse also allows for another truth. Notice that phrase, the glorious inheritance in the saints. That is just astounding. Think about that for a moment. Because what Paul is saying, if that's correct, he says that we you and I are, the saints, are what God has chosen for his inheritance. And you think about in the Old Testament, you say, well, this is true. Psalm thirty-three, twelve: blessed is a nation whose God is the Lord. The people whom he has chosen as his inheritance. Deuteronomy 32, 9, but the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is his allotted heritage. So Understood in that light, it's not that Paul wants our spiritual eyes open so that we see the inheritance that awaits us, but that we see that God has chosen us to be his inheritance, and that's a staggering. Imagine trying to do Christmas shopping for Jeff Bezos or some other billionaire. You know, he invites you to his house on Christmas Day, and you want to go out and buy a gift for uh, Mr. Bezos, and, and you want him to be able to um, you know, unwrap that gift and say something like this, wow, I never had one of these before. I've always wanted this. And you go, oh, that's highly unlikely. Yeah. But you know, what can you give such a wealthy person who has everything so that they say when they receive that gift from you, oh, this is a treasure. And yet, the God who owns all riches and owns the universe, who has no need, you know what he's done? He's lifted you up and me out of the pit of despair, washed us of the filth of sin, and dressed us in the beautiful righteousness of Christ. And he has made you and me his priceless possession, his inheritance, his personal treasure that he'll never part with for anything. 
Can you imagine what God is gonna do? I sometimes like to do this, imagine what it's gonna be like when I get into heaven. But when God sees me and I see him, I have a friend in Spain, Jose Emilio, who would say to me, Manuel, llegaré al cielo, pero por los pelos. He says, I'm, I'm gonna, I'll get to heaven, but barely. You know, his, his whole notion was, okay, God kind of tolerates me. You know, and doesn't think that he never really thought about God deeply loving him and delighting in him. And I think some of us have this in our heart of hearts, if we're honest, we think we're gonna to get to heaven with a hoodie draped over our heads. Why a hoodie? Well, you know, people that sometimes wear hoodies is because they don't wanna be recognized. And so we have this image of, oh, I'll get to heaven, I'll just be in the crowds of people going in before the Lord and I'll have my hoodie because, you know, I'm really not that significant. God's really not gonna notice me. You know, I'm slightly embarrassed because, you know, hey, just barely getting here. You know, I'm not deeply loved or desired. Oh, but may the eyes of your heart be enlightened so that you might know that you are deeply loved by the Lord. Do you know what that does? If that gets deep into your soul, you know what that does to your desire to serve this Savior? It changes everything. Let me tell you about Hillary. She had grown up outside of New York City in a well-to-do family and it appeared that her family was, you know, Somewhat normal, but as the years went by, she realized her father was an alcoholic, a drug user, an adulterer. She comes, she comes to faith in Christ, and she marries this Christian guy. And uh, she, she reflected on her, you know, her relationship with the dad. She goes, you know, I just can't keep this up because it's very abusive, emotionally abusive. And so she had a conversation with him and saying, look, I, I want to have a relationship with you, but not this way. And so, you know, her father was just, angry with her. And so years later, she goes, she and her family go off to, um, to serve as missionaries. And right before she goes, she tells her dad in a letter that she, she misses him, she was willing to do anything to make things right with him, but he never responded to that letter. And, you know, the years go on, and she, the only thing she heard from her father, about her father, was a voicemail left by one of her siblings saying that her father had passed away. She returns from the mission field, and she found his last will and testament, and it read like this. At the time of the execution of this will, my immediate family consists, and she named, he names the spouse, and my children, her two siblings, and then Hillary Reed Yeo. It is my specific intent and directive that no distribution of real or personal property be made from this will to my daughter, Hillary Reed Yeo, and her lineal descendants, if any. And she understood she had been disinherited rejected by her father. Needless to say, she grieved, she hurt, she prayed. By the grace of God, she reflected on how much God loved her. And she wrote, in losing a dad, I gained a father. In being disinherited, I am reminded of my true inheritance. God had been preparing me to be adopted into his family where I am beloved, cherished, and treasured daughter, where I am fully seen, fully known, and fully loved. My name is Hillary Reed Yeo, and no last will and testament of my father could ever change that. And for all eternity, I am the daughter of the king. I lack nothing. And I would say, Hillary, and you are your father's inheritance. 
And now when the gospel fills your vision and you begin to see with greater clarity that you are fully loved, fully known, fully treasured by God, you just might be more inclined to say this week, okay, Lord, though I might be uncomfortable, though I might be scared, though it may make life inconvenient for me, I want to pray this week, I'm willing to do whatever you who love me like this want me to do. Do with me as you will. Will you pray that this week? Do with me, you who delight in me, do with me as you will. And thirdly, the Apostle Paul prays that we would have the eyes of our heart enlightened to see the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us or in us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ, is verses 19 and following. And that word immeasurable is literally to throw beyond the usual mark. It has this idea of surpassing, exceeding. And Paul is trying to get his head around, you know, this power, divine power that's at work in the saints. And, and so what he does, he layers one word on top of another. He, he actually speaks about power from the, in that Greek word from which we get dynamite, right? And then might and then strength and then working, another word that talks about energy, right? And it's all as if he's saying, look, in you who are weak in yourselves, you don't have the native resources to engage in missions of bringing the rule and the grace to your neighbor, the grace of God to your neighbor and to the world. Yet, this is what you need, you and I need to understand. There's a great, unlimited, mighty, energetic power at work in you. It's not you. See, we're called to take steps of faith and to be courageous, right? But it's not about your power, not about your ability, but about His power by the Holy Spirit at work through weak vessels like you and me. And, and Paul goes on, and I wish I had time to kind of uh, you know, develop this and work out the implication because he talks about the, the divine power that's displayed in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That he, you know, it says that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. But then he goes on to talk about how that power is displayed in the exaltation of Christ. So here, just, just so that you get a sense of what's this power look like? It looks like raising Jesus from the dead. It looks like taking Jesus and seeing him exalted to the right hand of God. And so Paul writes that God seated him, Jesus, at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet. See, you understand this as a son of God, Christ, who is always Lord over all. There was never a time in which he was not Lord. He was Lord in the manger. He was Lord of the cross. He was Lord in the tomb. But after his incarnation, his sacrifice and resurrection, he was physically raised up into heaven, ascended as Lord of lords and King of kings. And he's exalted he was exalted by the mighty power of God and seated at the right hand of God. And you know, that's a metaphor for the position of unparalleled honor, unparalleled authority and universal rule so that all the world recognizes his lordship. And that's the end for us, right? We know that every knee will bow and every tongue confess. So we're engaged and called to engage in missions knowing that it will succeed. 
because he's been exalted. See, he's not just in the position, ultimate position. He also has ultimate authority over all things, all rule, and all authority and power, dominion, and every name that is named. He put all things under his feet. You know, see, we, we struggle with sin within. We struggle with sin outside. We know that there's opposition, right? Also from hostile spiritual powers and evil angelic rulers, even evil human influences in rulers and government and political structures. But we have to remember it's all under Jesus' feet. There is nothing over which he does not say it's mine and I control it. I have authority over it. Several years ago, a young lady called the church and wanted to speak with a priest or a pastor. I said, well, I can fulfill the pastor part. And I said, why do you want to meet? And she says, well, I have to talk to you personally. And so we agreed and so we met. And, and what had happened is several weeks before she got engaged, she was in, involved in some occultic activities. She had bought this talisman, this al- amulet, and she just sensed this evil in her home. Uh, and she was just scared to death. And so when we met, I was reading scripture to her and I'm praying with her and I, was, I pointed her to Christ and, and shared the gospel with her and just and talked about how Jesus had everything under his feet. And she took her little amulet, it's about two or three inches uh, tall, and, this, uh, and she said, what do I do with this? I said, give it to me. I go, and I'm thinking, what am I gonna do with this thing? So I took it around the side of the house next to, uh, the past our houses are pretty close and there's a trash can here and the neighbor's trash can's over there. And so I took a sledgehammer and I smashed the thing and I put it in my neighbor's trash can just in case. (laughs) Not really. I thought about it, but I said, what if they catch me? You know, and I had to come back, but Jesus, Even this is under your feet. Even that. Even your anxieties. Even your inadequacies. Even your incompetence. Even your hardness of heart. Even all the sins that you struggle with and all the excuses that you give. And you say, I cannot serve. I don't want to serve. And Jesus says, even that is under my feet. And you think, I make this lordship thing a hobby? Oh no, I, it is my life, it is my calling, and I will change your heart so that you serve me. And so, it's not your flesh that rules, it's not your excuses, it's King Jesus. So may the eyes of your heart be opened, enlightened. And when you hear that voice this week, that voice from the evil one says, you know, you really don't have enough. You don't have enough faith. You don't have, you know, that discipline of Alex Hanold. You don't have the grace and the knowledge sufficient to speak with your neighbor about Christ or to engage in some kind of ministry. You don't have enough love in your heart you know, to engage in conversation with a, different, a person of a different ethnicity or a different theological bent or a different political affiliation. 
You don't have enough to do that. You know, and that's just what you're going to hear sometimes in your own heart. You don't have enough. You don't have enough. And you don't have enough. And God says to you in his word, you are absolutely right. You and I, we don't have enough. But God and his son is enough. And so may the eyes of our heart see him who is enough and gloriously exalted. Let's pray together. We bless you. We're astounded that you would look at us, that you would be pleased to use the likes of us to accomplish your holy purposes, that you would call us, that you would delight in us, that you would give us so much confidence because of you being sufficient, you who are king and exalted, Lord. There is nothing and no one over which you do not rule. So grant us eyes, a clarity, deepen our souls, that we might see you, Jesus. And as we see you, speak of you for your great glory. Amen.